Let's remain standing and turn into the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But before we read the scriptures, let's ask the true teacher, the Holy Spirit, to be with us. Almighty God, we thank you, first of all, that you have inspired the prophets and apostles to, without error, to write every single word of your scriptures. And your word has been given to us to instruct us as to who you are and what you expect of us. So, Lord, we understand it is authoritative in every, every respect because it comes from the Almighty God. So, O oh Holy Spirit, come, anoint us, anoint not only the one who heralds the word, the word, but those who hear it. For the glory of Jesus, amen. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, it shall be make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation. Thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You may be seated. One of the great perfections of our living God is the fact of his faithfulness. He is a God who will always keep his promises. And as one who always keeps his promises, he cannot lie. And in fact, this is what the scripture says in Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent, has he not spoken and shall he not make it good? Today we're going to focus on the greatest promise that our living God has given to us. The greatest promise that he has given to mankind in the eternal counsel of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has decreed from all eternity to send Messiah, the Christ, into this world to redeem a fallen race of Adam. And God's love towards his elect, as the scripture says, is from the foundation of the world. The eternal triune God planned mankind's uh, deliverance from the ravages of sin. He didn't have to do so, but he did. So the plan was the Father's. And the eternal Son, who is equal in power and glory with the Father, chose to become like one of us, leave the glories of heaven, take upon himself human flesh, 
in order to redeem the fallen race of Adam. For indeed, he is the second Adam, as the scripture says. And the Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Son, he will accomplish the work, he will apply the work that the Son has accomplished in the lives of his elect people. Hence, the greatest promise that our God has given to us is the fact of that coming Messiah who would accomplish everything that the Father gave him to accomplish. Now, when was the first uh, promise concerning that Redeemer given? Well, it was given at the Garden of Eden, at the dawn of human history. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, when God pronounced the curse upon all those who participated in that fall, and he came to the serpent who deceived Eve, he said, there will be a seed that will come, a promised seed, and it will be the seed of the woman, and you will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush your head. And there are several great promises of the word of God, of the coming Messiah. And we're going to take, we're going to look at primarily one of them. But Isaiah, in Isaiah 7, verse 14, says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. And so the Messiah's conception was miraculous. And it was not totally of human origin. The Holy Spirit created the Son, as it were, conceived the Son of Man in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The other passage, it's a glorious promise is that of Isaiah 9, which we just read, which will be the the text of this morning's message. But let's put Isaiah's prophecies into historical perspective to understand its significance. Isaiah was God's prophet to Judah in the 8th century B.C. Isaiah prophesied to a people in great rebellion to God, Judah does not really know her Lord. And Judah is a sinful nation. And Judah is a seed of evildoers. That's whom God sent his prophet to and to prophesy. And to the extent, what was the extent of Judah's sin? Was brought out in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 5 where it says her whole head is sick. Her whole body is sick. Her heart is is sick. Judah is under God's great judgment because of her multitude of sins. And because of her great sin, God will bring judgment upon the nation. Oh, it is is his chosen nation. It is his covenant people. But God expects to whom much is given, much is to be expected. And Judah had failed her God. And he will bring judgment. And in 586 BC, he will bring that judgment through pagans to the holy city of Jerusalem, to the the holiest place on the face of the earth, the temple of Solomon. But because the, the nation had abandoned him, He will send Nebuchadnezzar to kill thousands, destroy the great temple of Solomon, and carry off a remnant into Babylon where they will be for 70 years. But you know, God's in his purging out of all his enemies. On the other hand, even though he does this, he will give a great hope for a remnant. That's his prophecy of Isaiah 9. You know, we read in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Woe unto them 
that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But in the midst of this nation that deserves judgment and judgment will soon come to her, this is nonetheless an occasion for hope for the remnant, the true people of God, that remnant of whom many were carried off to Babylon, whom we read about in the book of Daniel, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, who will stand form, stand firm for the glory of God and his honor. But we see here, Isaiah spoke a prophecy to this nation, this evil nation. And who was the king that he was speaking to? Who was the king that in Isaiah 7, he said, I will give you a sign. He gives this sign to one of the most wicked kings in the history of Judah, King Ahaz. We are told in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 2 through 4, that King Ahaz, he burned incense in the valley of Hinnon. He made in, uh, images to the Baal gods of the pagan nations. And he literally burned his children to the pagan god Moloch. Now Moloch, here's what Moloch was. Moloch was a huge statue of a bull and it had an open belly that had a fire. And Israel would take their children literally and throw them into the belly of Moloch to be burned alive as a sacrifice to the pagan god. This is what Ahaz was doing. This was the state of Israel or Judah at the time. And yet in the midst of that, God, God will give this glorious prophecy. You know, when we think about this wickedness and this great promise that was given during this context of this uh, vile king and this nation in rebellion against God, I've got to ask you, how much more different are we today in this country, in the United States, than what Judah was? We have a leader today in our land who calls evil good and good evil. We have a leader in this land who sanctions the murder of the unborn by abortion, saying it is a good thing. We have a leader in this land who, for the sake of diversity, has reinterpreted what male and female is and put those people in positions of leadership in his administration. He gives open sanction to a lifestyle that God says is abominable. So in many ways, in certain ways, we are not much different now as a nation than what Judah was when Isaiah gave that prophecy. I don't know about you, do you ever find yourself discouraged as you look out in the landscape, the cultural landscape, state of our country? You know, just this past week, I read an article about the church that though, the, though mega churches are on the rise, the state of religion is at an all-time low statistically in the United States right now. And so we are a nation that is already experiencing the judgment of God. And unless we repent, it will get worse for us. But rather than for us to give in to, to despair, I want us to remember today Isaiah's prophecy. 
Because it echoes so true for us as it did when it was given so many years ago. It was a prophecy, mind you, 700 years ago before the coming of the Messiah, it was prophesied. 700 years. Generation after generation after generation after generation, but no Messiah. But did that mean the Messiah was not going to come? Well, of course not. He was going to come. Why was he going to come? Because God, who is not a man who will lie, promised it. And God will keep his promises. No matter how long it takes, he will keep his promise. And those seven centuries passed before Messiah dawned upon the stage of human history. After all, Peter says in 2 Peter, a day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. It may seem long to us and many will generations will pass, but God is faithful to his promise, a promise to a people in great sin. He will send hope in a Messiah. When you think about this great promise of God, the promise of the Messiah, it is prophecy. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Prophecy by its very nature is predestination, is it not? It is foreordained, predestined to happen. So when God gives a prophecy, you can bank on it. It will come to pass. It is predestined. The birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension, all predestined, all prophesied. So in the midst of this great sin, God gave the promise of the Messiah. And during our time of great sin as a nation, in Isaiah, God gave a, a promise of a victory, the victory of Messiah's reign. And that when he reigns, and it will come to pass, and this reign, this victorious reign of Messiah is being worked out right now, even though you and I may think, well, it really is it. Oh, no, it is. All the purposes of God are being fulfilled. And even when it looks so gloomy and we can be tempted to be despairing, the promise remains. And where was this promise? Where did Isaiah said this promise would be? Well, look at Isaiah 9 verse 1. It says it was given to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which experienced great contempt. And that this land will see a great light. Well, what about the land of Naphtali and Zebulun? It's in the northern part of Galilee. So when the, because of the unfaithfulness of the northern kingdom, because they were worshiping pagan gods as well, and in 722 BC, God would send the Assyrians to crush the northern kingdom, and carry off the 10 tribes into captivity. And so Zebulun and Naphtali were the first places where the Assyrians conquered Galilee. Hence, since the Assyrians were Gentiles, that's why it came to be known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, this part of Galilee, even in New Testament times, was a despised district. And uh, it was greatly this despised district by the residents around it. It was honored and privileged to see not just a minor light, but to see a great light. I want you to... I want you to turn with me to Matthew 
chapter 4. In the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he will begin his public ministry, and guess where? Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? Because it was prophesied by Isaiah 700 years earlier. Look at, uh, at Matthew chapter 4, starting at uh, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John, that is John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, <clears throat> he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why this district? Because it was prophesied. That's why. And as verse 2 says here in Matthew 4, what was the state? What was the spiritual state of those to whom Jesus came? Well, they were walking in darkness, meaning their whole lifestyle was given over to sinful lusts and the like. And they were under the shadow of death. In other words, their spiritual state was about as bad as it could get. And we know from Scripture when it says they were under the shadow of death, what does the Scripture say? The soul that sins must die. And what does the scripture say? The wages of sin is death. And these people who were in, in bondage to their sin walked in darkness, meaning that was their lifestyle. Walking is a term to convey lifestyle. That's the way they were. And in themselves, they had no hope. Left to themselves, they would have perished. I want you to turn over to Isaiah 64, which is a great passage that teaches us what is the state of the natural man. That is the man without Christ. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 64, verses 6 and 7. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away, and there is no one who calls on thy name, who arouses himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hidden thy face from us, and has delivered us unto the power of our iniquities. We know that a little light can dispel darkness, but what came to Galilee and the Gentiles was no little light. What came to Galilee and the Gentiles was, as the scripture says, a great light. A great light because Jesus was there. And what did Jesus call himself as John the Apostle records in his gospel account? I am the light of the world. And so the light of the world, this great light, comes to this, this district, these people in bondage to their sin. No hope of deliverance in themselves. This is whom the great light comes in, fulfill, in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. 
Take a look at Isaiah 9.3 about this prophecy. What does it say here? It says, Thou shalt multiply the nation, thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. When this great light shines through the preaching of the light of the world, there are two things that will take place according to Isaiah's prophecy. There will be an increase in numbers and there will be complete peace. Or we can say there will be gladness and joy. Gladness and joy. When the great light appears to those without hope. So when this light shines in the darkness, God will bless with numbers, meaning those who will repent of their sins, who will come to Jesus Christ, and consequently, because they do come to Messiah, they will experience great comfort and joy. In the mid-19th century, one of the great preachers in the middle part of the 1800s was a Presbyterian preacher by the name of Daniel Baker. We have his book, his autobiography out here. I, I can't recommend that book more to you. He was, as it were, the George Whitfield of the 19th century. Preached in the North, preached in the South, and later on he would go out to the new territory of Texas. So he goes out to Texas, and he goes to Galveston Island, where there was a military outpost. There was a military outpost there uh, inhabited by soldiers because at that time they feared of the Mexicans invading, which shortly afterward they will invade into Texas through Santa Ana. So the great preacher Baker goes and asks the commander of the fort, can I, can I preach to the troops? And he says, well, surely. Can't do that today in many places. I couldn't do that when I was in Corpus Christi. Wanted to, to go and minister to two large naval bases. I was not led on the base, but that's today, besides the point. In Galveston, he goes out. The soldiers are lined up, and, and Baker is preaching. And he said in his autobiography, I changed part of the sermon. And as I was preaching, I noticed a a soldier with tears running down his cheek. And he asked the, the soldier, come, come up forward. He says, young man, do you have a godly mother praying for you in the States? Well, at that point, it says he burst out into tears so loud you could hear it for 100 yards. He says, yes, I have a godly mother in Pennsylvania who's been praying for my lost soul. And Daniel Baker will lead this soldier to Christ. And he'll go back the next day finding this soldier, what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Why? Because he's been born again. He, is, he has been renewed. And Baker says in his autobiography, if he was the only person that God sent me to Texas, it would be worth it. So when the light shines, and when the light, and that, that word is preached, God will do amazing things. After all, what does the scripture say in 2 Corinthians five seventeen? Therefore, if man, any man who is in Christ is a new creation, the old has passed away, Behold, the new has come. We are a new person in Christ, different. And we got to remember God's covenant promise. God, after all, told Abraham that one day, Abraham, when you did not have a seed, Sarah was barren. She was 90 years of age. God said, well, Abraham, Abraham says, well, I'll use the bondservant. Uh, Eliezer, maybe he can be the seed. No, no. 
Come out here, Abraham. Take a look up here at the stars. What do you see? This multitude of stars. One day, Abraham, your seed shall be as numerous as these stars and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. He didn't have uh, a child, but guess what? God's promise remains true, does it not? And Sarah, at the age of 90, who had never been able to conceive a child, conceives a child at the age of 90. And Romans says, Abraham, as it's interesting how it says it, as good as dead at the age of 100 is the father of the promised child. If God makes promise, he's going to see to it that it happens. And one day your seed's going to be numerous. And what's going to happen when Messiah comes upon the stage of human history? Oh, there will be a seed. And who is that seed according to the Apostle Paul? It is none other than Jesus Christ according to Galatians 3. And we are also called the seed of Abraham because we are united with him by faith in Jesus. We'll take a look at Isaiah 9, 4. We see why, why there would be such exuberant gladness. Well, for thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. In other words, it talks about the oppressor will be defeated. And when Messiah comes, there will be total victory and there will be complete peace. And what happens when Christ changes the heart? Well, he delivers us from the bondage to sin. That's what happens. Because we, as we saw in Isaiah, we can't arouse ourselves. We don't have the capacity to, to regenerate, to make ourselves a new creation. We're at the mercy of God. As Jesus would tell Nicodemus later on, Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God. And when Christ comes, he will give us that great victory. He will deliver us from that bondage to sin. He will deliver us from Satan's tyranny. And their hearts will be set free. Great joy comes to those who have been set free, like that soldier on Galveston Island. You know, Jesus said in John 8, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And if the truth sets you free, you are free indeed. Israel's oppressors will be destroyed. And he destroys them for what? For the sake of the remnant, for the true church. So when Isaiah gave that prophecy, he gives that prophecy to the remnant of God, to the faithful church. And this peace is both internal and it's external. As verse six indicates, take a look at verse six. What is the cause of this peace? For a, for a child shall be born to us. A son will be given to us. The reason there will be great joy among the Gentiles is that a child is born. This child is born is none other than Emmanuel, meaning God with us, whose virgin birth was promised by Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14. Note in verse 6 that the birth of this son is is given, meaning it is a gift from God. A gift is something you don't earn. You don't merit it. It is a gift from on high. Christ 
Emmanuel is God the Father's gift to the world, encompassed in darkness under the shadow of death. This child given is a male child. It will be a son will be born, and upon this son's shoulders will be a government. Meaning, this child born was born a king. And though his kingship doesn't manifest itself fully until his resurrection and ascension, nonetheless, he was born a king. And what are we told? He is, he is the son of David, the legitimate heir to David's throne, which God through Isaiah had told Ahaz, not to worry about the oppressors of the Syrians because he says, to, he says even to this wicked Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign, Ahaz, and that sign will be a virgin will conceive a son. That was given to Ahaz, the wicked king, a prophetic sign that would take 700 years to come to full, uh, fruition but it did come to pass. You know, not only is this child David's son, he is the son of the living God. I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Now it is fitting what is true then is true now. Remember, Israel had abandoned the Lord multitude of times. As we have said, Isaiah is speaking to a rebellious people. And let me start at verse 1 of Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In other words, they're having a big powwow saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do to cast him, God off from our midst? We don't want him. That's basically what they were doing, the rulers of the nations. Let us tear their fetters apart. Cast away their cords from us. We don't want this, God. And what is God's response? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Now, why does he scoff at them? Isaiah later will say he scoffs at them because the nations are but a drop in the bucket. The nations are like grasshoppers in his sight. That's why he scoffs. You think you can defy me? Well, I will show you something, God says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But here's the promise. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou wilt shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. A, war, a word of warning then, a word of warning to us now. Kiss the Son Messiah, or face the wrath of Messiah.
the government will rest on his shoulders of Messiah. This child, the only begotten here, was born for us. He's born for us. Think about that. What a blessed thought. He was born for me. God sent his son for us, whom he loved way back in eternity past. What does 1 John 4.10 tell us? Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So when Isaiah 9.4 says that the yoke of the Gentiles shall be broken, when they see the great light, when they repent to the preaching of the great light, notice that great uh, beckoning call of Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, verses 28 and 30. This is Jesus' the great light beckoning people who are in the depths of their sin to come to him. Verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Are you burdened today? Are you in great anguish today? Are you a lack of peace today? Come, come to me. I'll, I'll give it to you. All you have to do is come to me. I'll change you. And you'll never be the same. Never be the same again. Just come to me. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to take a look at verses 14 through 17. And we're thinking about this Isaiah's prophecy of a child being born for us. What would that child, what would that son accomplish? Well, here's what he accomplished. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Since then the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us. There was no other way. And if the fallen race of Adam was going to be redeemed, it had to be the eternal son leaving the glory of heaven to take upon our flesh in order to shed real blood because the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
to be the propitiation. Again, what does that mean? It means the satisfaction of divine justice by means of a bloody sacrifice. God is a holy God. And we have violated his holy law. And God doesn't wipe our sins under the rug or sweep it under the rug as we might say. No, all it takes to condemn us is one sin, one sin, one time in our life. He took upon ourselves human flesh in order to redeem us. Without, without him taking on that flesh, without him carrying out that atoning sacrifice, we would have perished. Brethren, without the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, there is no gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. I can't save myself. I can't do enough good works to merit a holy God. I'm at the mercy of God. I need a savior. I need someone to give me their perfect life. I need someone to pay the terrible price that I should pay for my rebellion. What greater yoke is upon us than our sins? He came to render powerless the devil whose bondage we were told that we were in bondage to, to Satan. You know, it's a, it's a double whammy. Not only does the Bible say we're in bondage to our sin, we're also in bondage to the devil to do his will, the scripture says, to do his bidding. We are sons of disobedience, Ephesians says. Children of wrath, the scripture says. But praise God, a great light has shone into our darkened heart and the chains that bound us to the devil and to our sins forever cast off. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 3. Verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and our, ourselves is your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ today, you love him because he, the devil who had blinded your, your minds from seeing the glorious light, has opened your eyes to see the great light. And you and I believe because we have been changed by the Holy Spirit. And when we are changed by the Holy Spirit, we can hear, we can hear Jesus preaching, come to me, come to me. I am a savior. Repent of your sins. I will save you. I will give you rest. The salvation is of the Lord. Well, Isaiah 9, 6 says that government will be on the shoulders of this, this 
child born. It is a government, unrestricted, universal government. A child who is the sovereign God of the universe, the supreme ruler of the nations, to whom, as we saw in Psalms, all the nations were given to the Son. And notice what what are the names given to this child? Well, it says, He will be wonderful counselor, the mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. This child who is called Emmanuel, God with us, he is indeed worthy of all these names. Oh, oh yes. And what else can we, could we say about Jesus Christ but wonderful? When you think about Jesus, it should be wonderful. The name Jesus should just conjure up this wonderful feeling within us. Wonderful in all his works and sufferings for his people. Wonderful that he would suffer for us. Wonderful that he, the just, would die for the unjust. Wonderful that by whose wounds we were healed. Wonderful that he would rise again from the dead, guaranteeing that you and I would rise from the dead. So when Jesus' good friend Lazarus died, and Mary and Martha are weeping with their, their brother who had died, Jesus deliberately waits in order to do his greatest miracle in raising Lazarus from the dead. And he says to Martha, if only you were here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. Oh, but he will rise again. Oh, on the last day. No, he will rise again. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is what Jesus has done. This is why he is wonderful. And he will be with us forever. He is a wonderful counselor, meaning he is the prophet who speaks authoritatively. He, the people, when they heard Jesus, they said, no one has ever spoken like this man. He speaks not like the scribes and the Pharisees, for he speaks with authority. He was no ordinary person, this child born to this virgin, Mary. He is the mighty God, is who he is. You know that name mighty, that Hebrew word has great sense. The name given to him, the mighty God, El Gabor. Gabor is a word that conveys by implication a warrior, a champion, a mighty, a strong man. That's what Gabor is. He is the mighty God. You could say when he's the mighty man, he is hero. He is the hero God is what he is. Don't you just love that, the hero God? What what greater name can you imagine, the hero God, El Gabor? In 1977, I went to see in the movie theaters the new movie out called Superman, the original. You know, the humanists... They'll have their way to distort things. And if you ever saw that movie, you have the planet Krypton blowing up, the parents of this child putting him in a capsule, going to send him off to Earth before the planet blows up. And of course, he has these spectacular powers. And as he's on his way for how many light years away, It has the father speaking to the son, saying about earthlings. He says, they are a good people, but they only need the light to show them the way. 
which is why I have sent them you, my only begotten son. I heard that. I said, whoa, what did they just say? <laughs> they just took the blessed, glorious, the hero God and imposed some humanistic concept. You know, it's grievous that our present culture is enamored by human hero gods, right? Whether they're male or female now, the marvels, they, they, they all have all kinds of hero gods that are coming to, to deliver us. When all along, those are the imaginary, right? We have the real thing. We have the real thing. We have the real hero God. Jesus is El Gibor. And he came to save us from our sins. You know, we don't, we don't need to have a Hollywood make-believe. He's the eternal father. That's his name. Now, this is not talking about the nature of what we call in theology the ontological trinity, meaning the nature of being. He's not talking about the trinity here. He's talking about it denotes when it says to the son, he's eternal father, it is conveying uh, a perpetual duration, endless succession of ages, eternal. He's an eternal father. Well, what is Jesus to, to us as church? He is a father to us. He's a father to his church throughout all the ages. He bestows immortality on the body and on individual members. What does a father do? A father speaks wise counsel. A father leads us. A father protects us. A father provides for us. Jesus, this child, he is the eternal father. And not only is he an eternal father, he is the child, he is the prince of peace. He has come to bring us peace, peace between a holy God and a sinful humanity. And remember, this holy God, this is the gospel. The holy God has a law that he says you must keep, and you got to keep it perfectly. And if you don't keep it perfectly, you must die. This is why in the Galilee of the Gentiles, they were under the shadow of death. This holy God's justice must be maintained. Turn with me to Romans 5, verse 1. Talking about this peace. He's the prince of peace. Romans 5. Look at verses 1 through verse 8. Or verse 9. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace to which we stand. We exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our, our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now notice, for while we were yet sinners, well, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. It is in Jesus 
that we have peace with God, a holy God. We can't make that peace ourselves. It is Jesus dying on our behalf. And notice we were the ungodly. And notice it says we were the helpless ones. And we were the ungodly. And Jesus shed his blood for such vile sinners as you and me. When we were, the, were a, a pathetic group of people, he came and would die for this lot. And Isaiah 9, 7 says, Messiah's reign would be extensive. Notice what it says there in verse 7 of Isaiah. There will be no end to the increase of his government and or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. As we said earlier, Jesus Christ is the promised seed to sit on David's throne. And you know what Peter preached at the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. He preached from Psalm, he quoted Psalm 110, verse 4. I want you to turn there to show you the, the significance of this kingdom of peace that comes. Psalm 110, starting at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, the youth are to thee as the dew. This is a prophetic prophecy of the coming Messiah, who right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. And he is stretching forth his scepter as king of kings, and Lord of Lords, and he is ruling in the midst of his enemies. Well, who are the enemies? We were the enemies. We were the enemies. And when he stretches forth that great, great scepter, his enemies will volunteer freely in the day of his power. We will see the great light, and we will hear the gospel and we will come. And a former enemy has been captured for Jesus. Hallelujah. Well, who will bring all of this about? Remember I said that a prophecy is predestination. A prophecy is a promise from God, and God will bring it to pass no matter what, no matter how long it takes. And who will bring this out? Notice it says there as we end, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of God Almighty will guarantee that everything about this son who was born in a meager way will come to pass. Most assuredly, God guarantees it. Isn't it wonderful that we have a hero God <laughs> that is for real and not imagination? We have a real Messiah who really does save us from our sins. Let me end with this. There is a, there's a popular song out I like the tune, the words of it, for the most part I like. I wonder about the assumption, Mary, did you know? You've heard that. I mean, I like hearing the song. But, you know, let me ask you, 
I'll just respond. Mary, did you know? Well, let me tell us. Let's look at what Mary actually knew. All right? Turn with me to the Magnificat. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I really need to begin at verse 39 because it's important because it's, it's pregnant Mary visiting pregnant, her pregnant cousin uh, Elizabeth who's carrying John the Baptist. Verse 39. Now at this time Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Let me just stop there. What leaped in her womb? A baby. A person. All right. You, you want one verse, one passage that proves the, uh, the personhood of the unborn? That, this is just one of several. All right. The baby leaped within her womb and was, oh, that baby was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth was filled, that is, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She cried out with a loud voice, said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, so this is what Mary knows. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has heard, had regard for the humble estate of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation. That's what she knew. Toward those who fear him, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. That's what Mary knew. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. That's what Mary knew. He has filled the hungry with good things, sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and his offspring forever. That's what she knew. God gave a promise nine centuries ago. And he has fulfilled it and he is fulfilling it. And we are the beneficiaries. Let us take comfort. Let us be glad that this is our Savior that reigns. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are true to all your promises and you will bring them to pass no matter how long it takes. For the glory of Jesus, amen.